have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 29 today. Today's text, I've titled our, our message, Committed to the Body of Christ. Committed to the Body of Christ. And that's essentially what the text that we're going to be looking at today has for us. It speaks of, frankly, Paul's commitment. Paul's commitment to the church which is the body of Christ. And I think most of us, we understand the analogy there. Jesus is the head and we are the body, so He is the authority. And we exist to do what He would have us to do, but we are also connected uh, relationally under Christ. That is what brings us together here today, and that, that makes us family. And so we need each other. And this is not an organization as much as it is an organism. And... Uh, every, every part of the body has a very important role to play. And when one person in the body hurts, the whole body hurts. When one person, when one part of the body is missing, it affects the, the whole of the body. And so I'm going to be talking a lot about that today, the church, the body of Christ, using those terms interchangeably because it is one and the same. The word church, uh, it's ekklesia in the Greek, and it, it, it means a people who have been called out of the world. Called out ones, literally, is what the word means. And so we, we understand the church is not four walls. It's not a building. It's a people. It's a body of believers, brothers and sisters, who have been called together in Christ, who are one. Amen? And we'll often refer to the local church building as the church. I'm going to the church. It's a convenient uh, way to, to talk about coming here, but we understand that it's not the, the walls, it's not the building, it's the people. The people are the building of God. And so I just want to make that very clear. And the church is extremely important to God, extremely important to God. And that's kind of where I want to start today uh, before we get into the text. And, and quite frankly, the church was so very important to the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote this letter that we are studying right now. And it should be so very important to us to love the church of Jesus Christ, to love His body. The first mention of the church is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus uh, was talking to the disciples, and I'll just read this for you. In uh, verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hell itself will not overpower the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is building His church. And at this point in time, I'm sure they had no clue what, what Jesus was even talking about. And He said, upon this rock... I'm going to build my church, this foundation. And what was it? It was the statement that Peter had just made, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so the church is to be built upon that solid foundation. And the church belongs to Jesus, and the church exists for Jesus. He is the foundation. Amen? Well, the second mention of the church is just a couple chapters later in Matthew chapter 18. Verse 15, and, and this ought also to be pretty familiar to us. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, 
take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And so this is biblical confrontation, discipline. If someone sins against you, you're to go to them. If they won't hear you, you take other people with you. And if they still are not willing to repent of that sin, then it goes before the church. And I've seen this happen before. This is how Jesus established discipline. And the point here is that Jesus wants a holy church. Jesus wants a healthy church. Jesus wants a church where people take these kinds of things seriously, where they, they seek to live holy and upright lives. And just side note here, it's just a few verses later where Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, surely I'm in their midst. You may not know this, but that verse is actually talking about church discipline. This right here. So if the church comes together and discipline is to be exercised, where two or more gather in Jesus' name, they have all the authority vested in them in Christ to exercise discipline. So what we really don't want is two or more gathered in Jesus' name. If you have two or more gathered in Jesus' name against you, that's actually not a good thing. But you'd be surprised. I mean, we really do use that verse frequently to talk about just church in general. You know, we're churching in here if we got two or three. The reality is, if you know Christ, He's in your midst. If you know Christ, then Christ is in you, even if you're all by yourself, right? And so anyways, those are some uh, very notable first mentions of the church. And in all reality, the church, folks, you've heard me say this before, I'll say it many more times, the church is what God is up to in the world. That is what God is doing right now in human history. We're dispensationalists here. I'm not going to get into all, all of what that means. But essentially, we believe that God has, has worked differently throughout human history, if you will, in different eras or epics or chapters. And we are in the age of grace. We are in the age of grace. That is also called the church age. And so God is building His church through Jesus Christ right now. God is calling people from darkness to light. God is calling people into the family of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is a very big deal. That is what God is doing in the world. That is God's program. That is God's institution. And God has been planning this for a very long time. The Bible says that well before time began, time's eternal, in eternity past, God had planned this. And we see this in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. I'm reading the NIV here. It, it helps us a little bit. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. So there was a promise of eternal life made before the beginning of time, before there was time and space. So the question is, who exactly was this promise to? Who did God promise that He was, gonna, he was going to usher in, bring about this, this salvation, this eternal life? Well, this is an inter-Trinitarian promise. This is a promise that the Father uniquely made to the Son. And, uh, you know, 
one thing we know about the Trinity, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, is that there is this incomprehensible love between the Father and the Son, the likes of which we could never, we could never fully understand or even imagine. And we, we get a glimpse of this in John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. Before anything was ever created, there existed the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And there was a love that existed there beyond our ability to ever truly grasp or comprehend. But there's one thing about love that we do know, and it is this. Love gives. Love gives. And so John chapter 6, verse 37, says this, Jesus speaking. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. God had purpose that he was going to give his son a people who would worship him. Love gives, love gave, the Father gave to the Son. And, you know, this verse here, I talked last week about uh, eternal security, uh, the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. Remember that? We talked a little bit about that. And um, you know, the question is, can a Christian lose their salvation? So often you hear, you, you'll hear that, right? But I don't think that that's the biblical question. I think this text right here in John 6 actually lays it out. And it is not, can a Christian lose their salvation? The actual question is, can Jesus lose a Christian? No, he cannot. That's the right answer. Jesus cannot. Because it says here, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will by no means cast any of them out. And he, he says here that he came to do the Father's will and that he would lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. He's not going to lose one that the Father gave him. Because he loves the gift that the Father gave him. The Father purposed to give His Son a people who would be uniquely qualified. See, the angels are not qualified to worship Jesus for His grace and His mercy. As, as people who have fallen and been redeemed, ransomed, reborn, restored, we can worship Jesus for who He is uniquely as Savior, as Redeemer, as gracious and merciful. And that's exactly what we see happening in Revelation chapter 5. Verse 11, it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders and the number of them were 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. That's innumerable. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. That is the chorus that echoes in heaven. That is the chorus that echoes from the redeemed saints. Those are the people that God purposed to save and to give as a love gift to His Son who would worship Him. And may I just say, worthy is the Lamb to receive the reward of His suffering. Amen? Amen? Worthy is He to receive the reward of His suffering. And so we are to give Him the glory. We are to bless His holy name. And so what God has done for us in Christ through salvation is ultimately for the love and glory of His own Son. We just get to be a part of that. 
We, we tend to make it all about us. You know, it's all about me. It's all about my salvation. It's all about God's plan for my life. But quite frankly, it's much more about God's love and plan for glory for his own son and how he uses us in the process. So to Christ be the honor and glory. But make no mistake, know this. Jesus loves the gift that his father gave him. Jesus loves the gift that his father gave him. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus loves his church. Jesus died for his church. Jesus is going to present his church faultless before the Father, without any spot, without any blemish. Such is the love of Jesus for his church. This is how important the church is to God, folks. And the point I'm making is, is, is how important it is to God, how important must it be to us? Unfortunately, many people don't appreciate the church. Many people don't see the value of the body of Christ. You know, you'll oftentimes hear unbelievers, when you're trying to talk to them about the things of the Lord, say, you know, I don't believe that I need to go to church to be saved. And that is a true statement. You don't need to go to church to be saved. Salvation is in Christ alone. But if you are in Christ, you are a part of the body of Christ, and there's nothing you can do about that. You're in and if you choose to isolate from that, something's deadly wrong. And the problem is, is that many believers share the same sentiment. The same sentiment. They just don't see the importance of it. It may be subtle. It may not be something that we say or even think, but our actions can demonstrate it. You know, the church has its share of problems. The local church, you know. I mean, we know this. The church is made up of people. It's going to have its problems. Every church has a lot of room for improvement in its worship and service to Christ. But the church is precious to the Lord, and it must be precious to the Christian. You know, the Bible says that, that Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. You've heard that before? And that if we, if we are severed from the vine, then there is no life. There is no fruit. Well, I, I think in a similar sense, that, that works for the body of Christ. Jesus is the head the head of the body. And if we sever ourselves from the body, do you think that that's going to have negative effects, ramifications? Absolutely it will. If we're severed from the body, that is going to be very problematic. So, we need each other. We've got to recognize that. We need each other. We must recognize how important the church is and be committed to her. And in our text today, we're going to see this intense love and commitment that Paul had for the church. That's, that's exactly what we've got in the text in front of us today. Paul has an intense love and commitment for the body of Christ. And we see his commitment in three different ways. If you're taking notes here, Paul was going to suffer well for Christ and for the sake of his body. The second point, to serve the church and steward well the word of Christ. And the third point, Paul purposed to strive well in building up the church and the power of Christ. So let's just look at our text here, starting in verse 24 of chapter 1. 
I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving accordingly, according to his working, which works in me mightily. You may be seated. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we reverence your word in our hearts. We humble ourselves before you, God, and we seek you. And we ask, Father, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts. And Father, would you speak through me, God, and may I preach Christ well. To your glory, God, and for the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. First point in the text Paul had purpose to suffer well for Christ and for the sake of his body. Verse 24, I now rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, this is a very confusingly worded verse. I'll I'll be the, the first to say that. And it sounds like what Paul is saying here is that Christ's sufferings were not sufficient And so he was going to suffer some more for what Christ did not do. But that is exactly what this verse is not saying. In fact, that would be a contradiction to this whole book. How many times have I already said the theme of this book is what? The sufficiency of Christ. The all-sufficient Savior, the person and work of Jesus Christ is more than enough. More than enough. In so many ways, not least of which salvation. And his suffering was more than enough. And remember, I talked about already one of the things that crept into this church was asceticism, and that was to say that, you know, Christ's suffering wasn't sufficient, so I need to suffer, I need to beat myself, essentially, to try to somehow gain favor with God. And so that is certainly not what this verse is saying. I think the NLT is very helpful here, the New Living Translation, how it it renders this for us. He says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the suffering of Christ that continue for his body, the church. The idea is simply this. Christ died, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, but there's still a very real hatred for Christ in this world. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Remember that? And so essentially, when Paul suffered for his testimony... The sufferings that he felt in his body was really the hatred and animosity that was intended for Christ himself. And so that is true for us. When we we witness to people and and they are hostile and they, they push back, they get very angry, it's not us that they're mad at. It's not even us that they hate. Ultimately, it's Christ that they hate that they cannot stand. And that is why they push back. And that's that's exactly what Paul is essentially saying here. Now Without question, Paul suffered greatly for Christ and the church. Man, this guy and his preaching, I mean, it's just like go into the next town, preach Christ, get beat up. And, you know, 
Steve Lawson, I love this, he said, the problem with today's preachers is that nobody wants to kill them. And that's just the truth. I hate to say it. We're not probably as offensive as we should be. You know, we're not as aggressive for the gospel as we should be. But you know, suffering was not a surprise to Paul. It was no surprise. God made it very clear from the beginning that he was going to suffer greatly. In Acts chapter 9, verse 16, it says it, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So when, when Saul, the apostle Paul, Saul at the time when he came to faith in Christ, he was told right out the, right out the gate that his ministry was going to be marked by tremendous suffering. Now Paul loved the body of Christ with a deep and abiding love, and he had a very intense concern for her. He suffered greatly for the body of Christ, but he also had a very, very deep burden for the church. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, after mentioning all of these things, starved, beaten, shipwrecked, on and on it goes, he says, besides these things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for all the churches. So on top of all of that, that long resume of suffering and, and persecution, what really, what really burdened Paul, what really came upon him was his deep concern for the body of Christ. That, that, Paul was driven by that, you understand. Paul was more than willing to suffer for the church, the body of Christ. It was that important to him. And it was not begrudgingly. It was not a, a begrudging willingness. Paul says here that he actually rejoiced to have it so. He was willing to, to do so, even rejoicing in the matter. You know, there's a, there's a special fellowship that comes with sharing in Christ's sufferings. And Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 says that. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I was talking with a brother earlier this week who's just been suffering in really uh, terrible ways for, for quite some time now. And he said to me, you know, in the midst of this, I've experienced, I've enjoyed an intimacy with the Lord and a closeness with the Lord. And I thought, that's, that's it, man. That, that, is the, that is the Christian perspective. That in our suffering, to draw close to the Lord in it. You know, Jesus' disciples, they rejoiced at the opportunity to suffer for him. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, after they had just been beaten, it says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Jesus' disciples, they rejoiced when they suffered because they saw that as sharing in you know, the suffering of Christ. And, and they thought of it as, wow, I was counted as worthy to suffer in his name. That's amazing. That's amazing to me. Jesus very much identifies with the suffering of his people. You know, the story of Saul. When Saul was persecuting the church, and Jesus confronted him there on the road to Damascus, what was it that Jesus said to him when he fell to the ground and he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, who exactly was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting the Christians. But Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? That's how Jesus identifies with the suffering of his people. Also over in Matthew chapter 25, you know the story where the king is a parable Jesus tells, and he says, you know, the king will say, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came and you visited me. 
And the righteous will say, you know, when, when did we do these things? And he said, when you did it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Now, I believe that to be a clear reference to the church, Jesus' church. There was going to come a time when, when the Christians were going to suffer greatly. They were going to lose everything. They were going to lose their family. They were going to lose their job. They were going to be destitute. They were going to be imprisoned. And Jesus says, when you come and you care for one of my people like that, you're caring for me. You're caring for me. So Jesus identifies deeply with the sufferings of his people. It's never wasted. That's the difference for those who suffer in Christ, is that it is working out in eternal glory, an eternal weight. What God is doing in us and through us, through suffering, it's never wasted. Now, knowing all of that, knowing us, you know, we do everything in our power to flee from conflict, from difficulty, from hardship, from suffering, as much as we possibly can. And I, hey, I'm not, I'm right there. You know, I don't want to suffer. Who, who wants to suffer, honestly? But uh, I was reading an article from the Gospel Coalition, and he said this. I just thought this was worded so well regarding suffering in the, in the present age. We have been brainwashed by our Western society to think that we can live our invincible lives in health, wealth, and happiness. That suffering and sacrifice must be avoided, and that death must be hidden and hushed up. It has become the great unmentionable. Our society has learned to expect a high level of comfort, good health, and a good standard of living, and trust so deeply in the power of money and of science to deliver the good life. We live in an age which has lived as if luxuries are necessities, and we're now paying the price of this self-indulgence. So we don't know how to suffer well. We don't want to suffer well. Now, Christ suffered. His people have suffered throughout the ages gladly, but we don't. We won't. And many have been made to believe that following Jesus is a path to ease. It's a path to ease. But that is not the path of our Savior. That was not His path. The Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53.3 I've taken solace in that, refuge in that. There have been times where I, I was crushed deeply. And I thought, you know... My Lord and Savior was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Why, why should I be exempt from sorrow? Why should, I, why should I escape grief? That was the path of our Savior. And undoubtedly, there are ways in which people do suffer. People do suffer. Possibly the loss of friends or family because of the name of Christ. Possibly the threat of losing a job, being mocked by peers. Uh, intimidation in, in, in the education system by professors, so on and so forth. These things do happen. But on average, we just don't suffer on account of our testimony here because of much of the freedoms that we jo enjoy in this country. Some of that may be because we're just not very outgoing with our faith. I think if we were as outgoing with our faith as, as the Lord would have us be, we would be experiencing more difficulty and hardship, you know? I think about that sometime. But look, here's, here's the point I'm trying to make in all of this. I'm not like, I'm not wishing that we could suffer more or trying to tell you that you need to go suffer more. Okay, that is not the point. The point I'm making is, is that the church was that special to Paul. The body of Christ was so important to the Apostle Paul that he would do whatever it took to build up the church, uh, even if it cost him his life. Great suffering. Paul was in it. Paul was absolutely committed, 
Now, my question is, is the body of Christ that important to you? Is it that special to us? For some people, church is just checking the box. You know, I went. I did my duty today. You know, God should be happy with me. I went. Or my spouse should be happy with me. I've, I've appeased my, my spouse, and so I've gone. You know, for others, it really is like a take it or leave it kind of thing. Ah, I could go or not. Probably wouldn't make much difference in my life. You know, for some, it's I just don't see the value in it. You know, I don't, I don't see the point. For others, you know, they may have such a high expectation of what it ought to be that they can't, they can't savor the flavor of what it is. They can't enjoy the goodness in it because it just doesn't measure up to what they think it ought to be. For some, it's just simply, what can I get out of it? The church is here for me, and what am I going to get? Does it have all of my preferences? Do they all line up just right? Is it, um, you know, I'll go, but don't ask me to serve. Don't ask me to participate. Don't ask me to partner in any kind of way. Is it, you know, I've been going, but I'm going to leave because, you know, I don't like how so-and-so looked at me. Or so-and-so did not say hello to me. Or so-and-so didn't remember my name. Or so-and-so didn't say thank you to me. I mean, these are all the kinds of things that can get wrapped up in and get in between us and the body of Christ, unfortunately. And so we don't want that. You know, the body of Christ is supposed to be such an integral part of the true believer. I mean, it, you know, the body of Christ, that's it. You know, that's our family. This is our family. You know, next to Christ, this is our life. This is my people. You know, for so many years now, the body of Christ has been that. My best friends, my closest family, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. You know, much closer to me than even my own blood relatives. I came out here for this church. And when I came here, I left much of my family behind. And, and that's that. You know, you guys are my family. You know, Jesus said, who are my brothers and who are my sisters? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Amen. That's the body of Christ. And so, you know, with that, you know, I, I worry a little bit. Sorry, y'all, I got some dry mouth thing going on today. Drink a lot of water. You know, I worry about these last 10 months. I wonder about the, the you know, the ramifications of the shelter in place and so many people that have opted to not come back to church whatsoever. That concerns me. And for some people, they have very good reasons not to. You know, they have serious health issues. Or they are very close to other people who have serious health issues, and it's not just them that they have to take into consideration. Or they work in places where there are a lot of people that are very high risk, and they, they just can't. It's a sacrifice that they have to make in this season of life. And, you know, God is faithful, and Jesus is faithful, and I, I know that He's going to see them through. But, man, 10 months away from the body of Christ and counting, that concerns me as a pastor. That worries me. You know, I think about that quite a bit. I'm discouraged, frankly, by the pettiness of so many Christians that have chosen a team and they fight against each other because either the protocols aren't taken seriously enough or the protocols are too serious. Man, this has been a no-win situation for pastors this past year. I just got to tell you, I'm still getting beat up phone calls and voicemails and all kinds of stuff about how we're doing too much of this or not enough of that, and there really is no, no winning. 
And then people start looking weird at each other. You know, they're on the other team, and I can't believe that. Look at how they make Christians look, and they get disillusioned, and now all of a sudden their hearts are hardened towards one another, and there's this bitterness that, that comes about, and it's petty. It's petty. They may be very passionate about it, but it's a passionate pettiness. The body of Christ is so much bigger than that. So much bigger than that. The body of Christ will continue. It will move on. Everything else comes and goes. People come and go. Issues come and go. Generations come and go. But the Word of God and the body of Christ abides forever. Amen? I'm worried about those who aren't coming back. You know, I know there are people that leave and there's something about distance. The enemy gets in people's minds and gets in people's hearts. And they start to get a root of bitterness or resentment for one reason or the other. And, and they're already gone in spirit. And it's, you know, are they even going to come back? You know, I, I, those kinds of things discourage me. It's a burden that you carry. You know, you, I worry about those people. But conversely, I have been so very blessed to see the people that have come here amongst our ranks, and they're just like, this is, this is it. This is my family. The love that is in this place. And man, they jump in head first, and they find their place, and they plug in, and they make a contribution, and they are, they are so enriched by the love and the fellowship that is happening in this place, and that delights my heart. Doesn't it yours? I've been seeing this, and it's a glorious thing to behold, to understand the worth of the body of Christ and to just get in it, to get in the body, to find your place, to play your part. You know, maybe you just don't feel this. Maybe you're here and you don't feel this way about the body of Christ, but you want to. You want to. You really wish that you could. Well, you know, a few things I could say to that. You know, you have to know people to love them. I struggled, I had a sense that I was going to be a pastor. I wanted to be a pastor. But I didn't really have this, this love. I didn't have this deep love, and I worried about that. And I talked to another pastor, and he said, Rob, you gotta, you got to have some people to love, man. He's like, he was a youth pastor. He said, I love my youth, but before I knew them, before I came here, of course, I don't even know who they are. But you got to be around the people. you got to get into the midst of the people. You have to get to know the people. This is not some abstract kind of thing. you got to get to know people and to, to grow in your love and appreciation and to allow them to love you, to be surrounded by that love that happens in the body of Christ. you got to make the effort to plug in and get to know people. And I know that is so hard. I know it's hard. It is hard to, especially if you're, you know, timid or insecure or introverted, but it's something that you got to do. You got to step into it. You got to give people a chance to know you. And, you know, I think the easiest way to do this is to find some of the smaller gatherings that, that we have, whether it's the women's study. It's been so cool to see that. They break up in small groups and the women get to know each other and there's just a true fellowship and love that's happening in the women's ministry. It's such an awesome thing to behold. And so whether it's our Wednesday night service or men's group or women's group or Thursday night regen or our prayer groups or our Zoom groups, whatever, that's, that's kind of where it's going to happen. Before service, after service. And there's humility, you know, just to go up to somebody and say, look, I'm, I'm new or I'm not really plugged in. I'm, I'm shy. Uh, you know, could you help me? You know, man, that's, that's like, man, who wouldn't love that? You know, that's what we want. And so that's, you know, humility and, and stepping up, stepping out, and putting yourself in a position where you can truly be embraced and become a part of the body of Christ 
and grow in that love. Amen? Amen. Well, it appears from the, the life of Paul and what we see here in this text that, man, the most important thing in Paul's life next to Jesus was the church. Jesus gave his life for the church, but Paul did too. Now, not in the same way. Jesus died for the church. Jesus died for the, for, for the salvation of, of his people. But Paul gave his life for the church. He lived and he died to that end, to serve the people of God. Paul also saw the body of Christ, the church, as a responsibility that had been given to him, as a stewardship. And that brings us to our next point. The next Paul was committed. Paul purposed to serve the church and to steward well the word of Christ. Regarding the church, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So Paul became a minister of the church, and that means servant. A minister is not some high and lofty thing. It, it means one who is, who is uh, there to serve. It's one who has given their life in service to something else. And so Paul was a servant to the church of Christ, and Paul was a steward. That means that he had been given a trust. That means he had been given responsibility of something. He had oversight. It was his job to invest in it, to tend to it. And one day he would have to give an account to the Lord for it. And that's what stewardship is. And we're all stewards. We're all stewards of the church. And his objective as a servant and a steward, he tells us here in verse 25, was to fulfill the word of God. To fulfill the word of God. Now, the, the NIV says, I have become the church's servant. I have become its servant by the commission of God, by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. That was Paul's commission from God, to present the word of God in its fullness. The NLT says, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. His entire message. So that was Paul's deal. That was Paul's priority. The whole truth. And nothing less than that. That was Paul's priority as we see in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20 verse 20 he says, You see how I kept nothing back that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. All the truth and everything in between. You know, Paul did not shun from delivering it to them. And that is so very important. What a priority. That's the pri priority of the church. And that's why we take reading and teaching the Bible so seriously, because I have a charge before God to present to you the entire counsel of God, the whole truth. I, I don't get to cherry pick it. You know, I, I have to say the hard stuff. I have to say the confusing stuff. I have to say the controversial stuff. I have to say all of it because I have a charge before God to do that. And we all have that. That is a charge that has been placed on all of us. We have that responsibility one to another to say the hard things, to say the loving things, to present the whole truth to each other. It's the responsibility not only of God's, uh, the pastor, but of also the church itself. And we see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. He says, These things I write to you, 
though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So here Paul says that the church, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The church exists in many ways for many reasons, but one of those is to preserve truth. The church ought to be a place where you can go and hear sound doctrine, where you can learn the true truth about the Word of God and about the Son of God and about the Spirit of God and about how the church ought to live and about holy living and all of that. That is the church's responsibility down through the ages, from one generation to the next, to know the truth, to hold dearly the truth, and to preserve and to protect and defend the truth and then to pass it down to the next generation so that our sons and daughters and their sons and daughters will have received this trust and what they hold in their hands and their hearts will be every bit as pure as what we hold in our hands and hearts today. Amen? That's the responsibility of the church. It's the responsibility of God's servants. God's servants. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-2, through 2, it says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So there's all of those words in one. You know, we are servants, we are stewards, we are stewarding the mysteries of Christ, and it is required of us that we be found faithful. You know, the church, servants of God, there's a lot of confusion today about what exactly we're supposed to be doing or what we're supposed to, be look, look, what we're supposed to look like or what our mission or our objective is. But we see here that faithfulness is what we're called to faithfulness with the mysteries of God, with the truth of God, with the Word of God, the whole truth, you know? It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. We need the truth in its entirety. Now, many churches in our day, this can be really deceiving, many churches in our day have not abandoned the Bible, but they have abandoned sound doctrine. It's really confusing. I mean, they open the Bible, they even speak from the Bible, but somehow, some way, every single week, the message is about how to further my lot in life. How, how for me to become a better person. How for me to walk in my purposes. And somehow it misses everything else. How can that be? No matter where you land down in the Bible, there you are, right? And so they maybe have a Bible and be teaching from the Bible, but there's something that is obviously missing there. They've abdicated from their the responsibility to sound doctrine. We must be committed to this as the church. We are stewards of the words of Christ. We must be committed to preserving it and handing it down. And Paul goes on to tell us exactly what that is. Verse 26, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So Paul made known to them the mystery of God. Now, the word mystery here is it's something that has been hidden but is now revealed. It's the unveiling of something. It's the pulling back the curtain to see what's behind there. And it's been revealed. It's been revealed. And again, I think this speaks to some of what was going on in the Colossian church because what were they constantly looking for more knowledge, hidden knowledge, secret knowledge? I've talked about that. It's not Gnosticism, you know, comes from the root word uh, gnosis, knowledge. And there's this knowledge that is to be found or only a select few have it and they can give it to you, you know, and, and it's a, an elevation of oneself. And so 
Paul saying, look, God's mystery has been revealed. Amen? God's mystery has been revealed. That's just all there is to it. And to whom has this mystery been revealed? God's people, God's saints. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, it says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and to whom the Son will, wills to reveal him. And so Christ has, has chosen to reveal himself to us in the mysteries of God, to God's saints, God's chosen people. We are the recipients of this mystery, amen? Man, praise God for that. We are the recipients of the revelation of God Himself and what He has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see right here exactly what that is. Verse 27, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That is the mystery that is the mystery that's been hidden from generations, but has now in these last days been revealed to God's saints, the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ in His people. When God came and dwelt among His people, dwelt in His people through Jesus Christ, His Son. And what we're talking about here, it's the doctrine of union with Christ. We've been united to Christ by the Spirit. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And that makes all of his accomplishments and promises active in us. And if you've ever wondered how it could be that we have, we have died with Christ, as the Bible says, or that we have risen with Christ, as the Bible says, or at, at, that we have ascended or and seated in heavenly places with Christ right now, as the Bible says, or that Christ's perfect, uh, perfection is ours and applied to us. How can that be? It's because of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen? Christ in us. Christ in us. We are adopted into Christ's sonship. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God because of Christ in us. Christ takes our sin and shame and shares with us His righteousness and blessing. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That is the mystery revealed. That is what we steward. That is the word of Christ. It is the good news. It is the gospel. That we who were dead in our trespass and sin and separated from a holy God justly awaiting His judgment. We have been forgiven. We have been washed clean. We have been made new. We have been adopted we have been born again by the Spirit of God through faith, having trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, having repented of our sins and turning to Him and, and living for Him and serving Him. That is ours. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that happens through union with Christ as Christ indwells us by the Spirit, and we are born again, made alive. Amen? Amen. That is the mystery that has been revealed. And that is sound doctrine, folks. We must have it, and we must be faithful to keep it. Paul's commitment to and stewardship of sound doctrine is also quite practical. And with it, his goal was to strengthen the body of Christ. And that brings us to our last and final point. Paul was committed, Paul purposed, 
to strive well in building up the church by the power of Christ. That was Paul's commitment. To strive well in building up the church by the power of Christ. Verses 28 and 29. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to His working which works in me mightily. Paul said it's Him that we preach. Who? Jesus. It's Jesus that Paul preached. Him we preach. Christ ought always to be the overarching emphasis. He ought always to be the center of it all. Christ is to be the center of the church. It's His church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus purchased the church with His own blood. It ain't my church. It's His. You understand? And so the church exists for His glory and to serve Him and to bless His holy name. And so, man, churches, you know, and this is a real danger for, for all of us. It is so easy to get distracted and make church about something else where Christ is no longer the center of it. Him we preach. Christ ought to be the one at the center of, at the head of the church, always. Christ ought to be the center of the preaching. Man, it's easy to preach about anything and everything but Christ. It's easy to preach the Gospels and somehow miss Jesus, you know? And so that's something that we have to ever be vigilant about. Christ at the center of it all. Christ is preeminent. Christ is our hope. Christ is the solution. He is the answer. To Christ be the glory, and Christ ought to be the center of our lives. He ought to be the very thing that, that we live for, the one that we live for, the one that we live to, the one that we are able to live because of. Christ at the center of it all. Him we preach. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul had already determined that. You know, when I came to you, it wasn't about my great skills, public speaking, mighty presence, humor, charisma, none of that. It was Christ Jesus and Him crucified. That was it. That was the message. That was the center of it all. That was all the power, folks. That is where the power lies. You understand? You take that out, you got nothing. You put all that other stuff in, it's a bunch of fluff. It's deceiving. It might get you excited for a minute. It might, might even make you feel a little better about yourself for, for a half a second. But there's no power in that. It must be Christ. Christ at the center of it all. Christ whom we preach. And so I'd just like to give a little exhortation here. I'd like to maybe just go down a, a small little rabbit hole and, you know, please God have mercy on me because this is not easy. But, you know, it's Christ and Christ alone. And it is not Christ and Donald Trump and the Republican Party because that's, that's really in the church right now. And I'm seeing some factions and divisions, and I'm seeing some crazy stuff springing up. Because in many ways, it's like Donald Trump is the Messiah and the Republican Party is the promised land. <laughs> Look, I'm conservative, okay? I'm conservative. This church is conservative. But we got to get some things straight. Jesus. 
Jesus is the one that we look to. Jesus is our hope. He is the truth. He is life. Life is found in Him alone. And it's not Jesus plus anything else. And I'm starting, and I'm just speaking as a pastor now. I'm speaking as the, as the, the under-shepherd of this church. I'm getting really concerned with how far these things are going. And it's not ending. And so now there's some other thing I'm starting to hear. The storm that's coming. And there's a date set. And there's this ominous, cryptic talk about whatever this is going to be. It's not going to stop, folks. And we got to move on. And it was never about Donald Trump. There's one man that God endorses. You know who that is? His son, Jesus Christ. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What? Hear him. Hear him, okay? God's endorsement is on Jesus Christ, his son. And we are of that kingdom. And that is whom we live for. And that is who we preach. And so we got to be careful because it has gone way too far and it continues and it continues and it's getting crazier and crazier and there's no place for that in the church. There's no place for that in the church. The church is not about, you know, libertarian, Republican, Democrat, independent. It's not any of that. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And if there's anything that we're going to be out there preaching and pushing, it's going to be that. You know, if we put that, if we put that same zeal that you see so many Christians putting into that stuff into this, people be getting beat up for Jesus a whole lot more. Amen. And so I'm just saying, it's Christ that we preach. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the one to whom we live and die. Christ is the one that we share. And we got to be careful about not getting off into all this other kind of stuff that the church has just got no business getting off into. Paul's preaching consisted of warning and teaching and wisdom he held forth christ it's him that i preach and he warned the people he instructed the people and he gave application to these truths and that's that's what we need folks unbelievers need to be warned of the consequences of being outside of christ not be being found in him there must be warning in the preaching Warning, you must believe on Jesus Christ. You must look to Him to be saved because there's salvation in no other. And outside of Him, God is not your Father. God is a holy judge. And justice is going to be served. You must have Christ. You must look to Him. You must call upon His name and ask for forgiveness and call upon Jesus to be your Lord, to be your Savior, to be your King. Amen? We must warn people of the coming judgment. You know, what would happen to you today if you died? Life is not promised to any of us, and we don't know what today, even today, brings forth, holds for us. Where are you going to go? If you're counting on your own goodness, if you're counting on your own works, let me just tell you, your works aren't working. Your works aren't going to get it. The sinful works of a person is not somehow going to earn their way into, into heaven. We need the works of another. We need the works of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and died the death that we deserve on the cross in our stead. And we've been given the promise that if we but call upon His name and trust Him, that we will be saved. And we can know God as our Father. Believers need to be warned. Believers need to be warned about godly living and the danger of straying from it. Believers need to be warned about Christ and about the heresies regarding Christ. You know, I love the quote John Corson said, if, if all we ever do is teach Christians and never warn them, we're just fattening them up for the kill. 
You know, we must warn people. Paul's preaching had warning in it. And the goal of Paul's preaching was to produce perfect Christians. Isn't that good? That's what it says. That I might present everyone perfect. How's that going for you? Feeling perfect? Thankfully, that's not exactly what it means. It means mature. It means complete. It means whole. He is trying to produce in us maturity. Maturity. And that comes through the preaching of Christ, through warning, through teaching, through the wisdom. And to that end, Paul labored with all of his might. Paul labored with all of his might to that end. He toiled to exhaustion. So we got to be committed to this, folks. we got to be committed to this. And I'm, I'm wrapping up with this, so just hang, hang in here with me. We have to be committed to this end, that we're going to labor, that we're going to strive to maturity in Christ. That is our desire for the body. That's our desire. As pastors here, that's, what we, that's why we're here, to preach and to teach and to counsel and to lead and to see you grow up into Him who is the head, full of maturity. And that is the goal, that is the job of the body in and of itself. The body works together to this end. You guys are supposed to be working and serving and, and mentoring and discipling each other as well. Amen? It is not just my job. I'm not the professional minister. It's all of us. We're all in this together. And that is why we have a resource that we've been trying to, uh, to put before you guys, and Pastor Dan's been talking about it. You can go on our website if you want to get in the game and be a disciple maker, or if you need to be discipled, because maybe, you're, maybe you've been walking with the Lord and you know some things, but you don't know how to disciple because you yourself weren't really discipled. We can train you. We can disciple you. If you want to be discipled, we can do that. If you want to be a disciple maker, you can do that and we can help you. So you just go on there and click the link, uh, Discipleship, sign up, and we will, we will get you in the game. You know, that was Paul's commitment. He was committed to labor for, to, uh, for the church, to strive well in building up the church, to labor hard and for fruit. And that all came, as it says here, by the power of, of God that worked mightily in him. And that, that's, what it, that's what it boils down to, folks. We can't do anything without the power of God, without the blessing of Christ. Right? We can't do it. We need Christ. And we count on Him to be the one to bring fruit. We need Christ. We need each other. Amen? We need the body of Christ. It's so very important. I couldn't imagine my life without it. I really couldn't. I could not imagine my life without the body of Christ. I'd, I wouldn't want to imagine my life without you guys in it. And so I know that many of you feel the same way. And I praise God for that. And so I thank God for what He is doing here and on that note, let's close with a word of prayer. King Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you are the head of the church, and there is no other. You reign supreme. You're preeminent. All things are from you, through you, to you, for you, God. All things are held together in you, and we praise you for that. Lord Jesus, have your rightful place in this church. Have your rightful place in our lives and in our hearts, in our minds, in our families, in our workplace. Wherever you've planted us, Lord, have your way. I pray that this body of believers here would continue to be knit together and to grow in strength and love and maturity. I pray that we would be a Christ-centered, Christ, 
saturated church all about Jesus and to the glory of his name and for the furtherance of the gospel and the building up of the church by your power, Jesus, and your blessing and for your glory and for your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.